It is another opportunity and a blessed privilege that we have this evening to have been able to engage in worship as we did this morning, to appreciate the singing, the prayers, the opportunity to consider the Word of God, and yet to be able to have that privilege yet again today is truly a blessed thing. I know that I stand before those who heartily consider that injunction of Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And indeed, it's a delight to be in the presence of those who love the Lord and His Word and who desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. This evening, as you probably noted in the bulletin, as well as in the lesson this morning, I made hint that tonight we would give another consideration, a somewhat extended one as it relates to the crucifixion. I would invite your attention then as we look at that passage that was read from 1 Peter 2 verses 21 to 24 and use that as the principal thrust and theme of our lesson. As we build our thoughts around it, some introductory thoughts might in fact be in order that moves us toward that given direction. Excruciating would be a fair way of describing that crucifixion scene that you and I considered this morning. Perhaps many of us were touched as we relived and reconsidered, reflected upon the nature of that crucifixion, what the Savior experienced for you and for me. And as He did that, it is still interesting that that word excruciating has as its middle section, E-X-C-R-U, and that in fact, I'm told, actually relates in its original language to the notion of the cross. It was an excruciating way to die. It really was a tormented way to die. And yet as we give thought to the maximal degree of pain the Romans took pride in in light of the crucifixion, we ask this morning, why did the Lord engage Himself in that? Why did He permit Himself to endure it and experience it? We close that lesson by noting that it wasn't because of crimes He had committed, nor was it to satisfy the whims or fancies of others. It was to make it possible for all, for you, for me, for those who even did it to Him, to enjoy the opportunity of having sins cleansed, to stand justified and right before God. Tonight, as we let Peter help us expand upon that thought more fully, I would ask that we do that by looking again at the passage, reading it again in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21, and listen to the things that we encounter on that occasion. For even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not. But you'll notice, He committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. Who His own self bare our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. What a marvelous anthem Peter set before us, and what a beautiful consideration as we make application to our lives today. Listening to Peter, one who was there to witness it, one who was there to see it, the way it touched his life and the way that it's able to touch ours. As we do that, I'd like to select three of the phrases out of that passage that we just read, the one that Trail read before us also. And as we look at it, one of the first things in verse 24 was this. He bare our sins. B-A-R-E space O-U-R space S-I-N-S. The reality of sin is indeed a crushing thing, isn't it? It truly is a matter beneath which you and I can never, 
never crawl free from it of our own effort, of our own volition. We are told explicitly in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes you and me as well. It includes those who stood there beneath the cross and watched our Savior. It includes all of those who had a role to play in leading Him to that point. You'll notice furthermore that the wages of that sin, of course, is death. Romans 6.23. We do learn on that occasion so amazingly that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To think about this crushing debt of sin, we sang a song this morning, as I recall it was the invitation song. Gone is all my debt of sin. Christ paid it fully at Calvary. Christ took care of that. As you give thought to this matter of He bear our sins, let's develop that more fully in the following way. Isn't it still the case that you and I have no means apart from the Christ to relieve ourselves from that crushing burden? It will be upon us even to the point of eternity if we do not allow the Christ to remove it, to take away the guilt thereof, and to do so with completeness. The human family is often very good at half-heartedly doing things, isn't it? You perhaps pay someone to do a job for you. You learn later that he or she didn't do it very well, and so now your car's torn up again, or your house wasn't built the way you wanted it, or some other matter, you learn to be far beneath what you felt like you paid for. Jesus didn't do a half-hearted effort. He bare our sins. I would invite you to give some thought to the purity that's involved in that. For God does not have any fellowship with those who are in sin. Notice passages like these in Habakkuk 1.13. The bold minor prophet of old straightforwardly said that thou, God, art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. If your life or mine is encumbered with sin, clouded with that degree of separation from God, we will not, you see, be able to enjoy fellowship with Him. Later we notice in the Ephesian letter, and we find David exclaiming the same. I've asked you to note Ephesians 2.12 on that occasion. Think about this as it describes you and me. That at that time you were without Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul thus, in his statement, made reference to this group of people who at some former time in life were hopeless. It certainly must be one of the most dire circumstances in which one could be to be hopeless. And Paul said those separated from Christ, apart from Him, distanced from the great love and grace of God, were hopeless. They were not covenant members of that commonwealth of Israel, they were not near unto Christ. They were hopeless. You and I live in a world that though it often doesn't realize it, it too is hopeless. For as long as it rejects the Messiah, the one through whom the hope of forgiveness of sins is made real, they are hopeless. Isn't it a marvelous wonder that not three verses later, Paul turns that around so joyously and say, but now... You've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. You're no longer alienated and separated and distanced. You've been nigh, made nigh, drawn near by the efficacy of the cross. 
you see Jesus bore our sins. He bare them. As if we might wonder what that word bear indicates. Isn't it significant how often the writer Peter points us to the personal nature of what Jesus did? I've highlighted it for you again. He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. One might think that that middle prepositional phrase could have been removed. He bare our sins on the tree, but that wasn't sufficient. By inspiration, Peter said that He bore our sins in His body. That leads us to more deeply appreciate, doesn't it, that my sins are one of the things that sent Him there. And the same is true of you. He went to the cross to bear my sins. Randy Bobby, that would live 20 centuries later. And He went to the cross to bear your sins too. You and I thus are the reason that that Son of God did what He did, bearing. And that word bear means to lift up, to offer up. In fact, I'd ask you to notice that there are some other passages, especially in Hebrews, that use the very same word in Greek. And it's used to explicitly relate to what the Savior accomplished. Hebrews 7.27 is one example. Where there it says, He needeth not daily as those priests to offer up sacrifices for Himself and then for the people. For He offered one sacrifice, speaking of the Christ, and the same Greek word is there used. He bore our sins. He offered one sacrifice. In Hebrews 9 verse 28, low closing verse to that chapter. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin and salvation. One more time, He bore our sins. He carried them to that place in the sense that He paid the atoning price needed for them. The amazing truth to all of that is, when you think then about the excruciating treatment that His body received because of sin, those sins again were not His. They were mine, they were yours, in His own body on the tree. This isn't the first time in Scripture that these thoughts appear. Isn't it true that even Isaiah, long before Jesus was ever born there in Bethlehem, we remember the writer there being challenged and encouraged, inspired by God. In the 53rd chapter, as he described the suffering servant, and what would befall the Messiah, what he would experience, and also as to why he would do it. This is what the inspired writer there said. Who hath believed every report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men." a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised, and we esteemed him not. And then beginning in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken of God, smitten and afflicted. And then on to verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was bruised for our iniquities. By His stripes we are healed. In verse 6, there's somewhat of a concluding thought at the middle point of the chapter in which He says, The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 
This was written again long before the Savior came to this planet. And it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. You'll notice that Peter quoted the latter part of that verse verbatim, didn't he? By His stripes we are healed. Thus the wounds that were inflicted upon Him, the chastisement that He received due to our lack of peace, the stripes that were laid upon Him in that scourging, the wounds that He received were because of me. They were because of you, because of our sins. Isn't it lovely to think that He bore our sins in that regard? But let's turn to this reality. To speak of the fact that He bore our sins does bring us to this statement too. Later in that same chapter, Isaiah 53, three different times in verses 9, 10, and 12, the inspired writer there says He bore our iniquities, He carried our sins, and thus He carried what you and I couldn't. Isn't it amazing how heavy sin can be? In fact, it was so heavy that you and I can't lift it by ourselves. It took the Savior to bear it. And it took Him to pay that needed price for it. Isn't it true that Peter wasn't finished? For in addition to his discussion that he bore our sins, he also made this statement. There is a consequence to that fact. Now in present tense discussion, let's speak of you and me dead to sin. When he made that statement in 1 Peter 2.24, that Jesus bore our sins, He went on in the verse to say that now we are dead to sin. What is it that Peter meant by that? What are the implications of what Jesus did at the cross? If He bore our sins, may I submit, you and I are now able to live dead to sin. Let's speak about that for a moment and see what may be involved in it. To live dead to sin, to be dead to sin, to appreciate deadness to sin... May I invite us to look at it in the following way. Two things may well be involved. First of all, as one gives thought, since Christ bore my sins, it is then not incumbent upon me, and the same is true for you, that we must not then live in a habitual, ritual life of sin. Because He bore it, you and I need not live beneath the terrible burden of it, and thus we need not be shackled to it. To say that differently, when the time of repentance comes, and we thus make a change of mind that produces a change of life and a change of action, we are not those slaves of sin any longer. We've become dead to sin. We've become dead to the habitual practice of sin. Isn't that the message of Paul, from Paul in Romans 6, beginning in verse 1? When, when he reached verses 1 and 2 of that chapter, he so lovingly, but yet penetratingly, said that if we are dead to sin, shall we live any longer therein? And the question answers itself. You and I, being dead to sin, must not live beneath that same habitual life of sin any longer. It thus evinces a lack of repentance on our part if we continue to commit the same old things over and over again without making an attempt to improve our life. Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. When we thus reflect upon the crucifixion, what happened to Christ, that was because of my sins and yours. 
when you and I understand that, we certainly will not be able to habitually live that life of sin any longer. We will firm intent, strive to do better, to strive to make changes and differences in our life. But not only that is involved, Peter takes us further. For not only dead to a habitual life of sin, what can one say about the guilt of sin? The price that must be paid because of it. Sin is the transgression of the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. And there will no sin enter heaven, Revelation 21, 27. And thus, in sin, I have no hope of heaven. It is here that we learn we can be freed from the guilt of sin. What I did, what you did, can be wiped clean and completely forgiven. That lovely thought perhaps goes beyond the bounds of the easiness of human contemplation. Here Peter says, dead to sin. In baptism, we learn all about that. For in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, Paul continues, Know ye not, he made that statement, Know ye not, that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. That statement of Romans 6, 13 leads us to appreciate that when you and I were baptized, we made the conscious decision of turning our life over to the Master. And in that way, we are those individuals that not only have died to a habitual life of sin, we are freed from the guilt of those previous sins in our lives. We've been forgiven of them. And in that forgiveness, we rise to walk in newness of life. That new creature spoken of in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. That newness of which we read, is newness that in fact is directly before us here. That newness is a direct consequence of the fact we're dead to sin. We do not live that kind of life any longer. Our intent, our obligation, our motivation, our duty, and our responsibility is tuned to a different frequency. That new frequency is the frequency of God's Word. The lovely words of obligation that He has for us and our loving desire to simply do what He says. As you give thought to not only dead to a life of sin, dead, of course, to the guilt of sin, I would ask you notice one other way that Peter states that. He did say in 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus did this that we might in fact live dead to sin. In Greek, that means in order that. Thus, one can also state that was the purpose of why Jesus died the way He did, so that you and so that I can live dead to sin. Isn't that amazing? He died that you and I not have to live beneath the burden of sin any longer. Don't we live in a world that needs to hear that message and they need to do something about it? You don't have to live that way anymore. Christ died so that you could be freed from this. And that is the wording of Romans 6, verse 18, isn't it? To give some thought to that freedom, the liberty that we enjoy in Jesus, a liberty that's freed from sin. Not that we won't make mistakes and be guilty of sin, of course, but that we can always obtain forgiveness and not have to pay that eternal price for that separation from God. Truly, Jesus did so much that you and I might live dead to sin. An interesting parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22 perhaps has something to say about 
what should be your thought and mine relative to this matter? If you and I appreciate then the capability of living dead to sin, let's revisit that parable just a moment. Jesus spoke about a king who, in fact, threw a wonderful wedding feast. The time came, of course, the feast was ready, and he proceeded to bring in or attempt to do those that were invited, but they refused to come. One had his merchandise, one had this and that to do. They all refused to come. And what's more, they even spitefully entreated his servants that he sent to bid them. And believe it or not, they even slew some of those servants that he sent to invite them now to come. In his anger and in his wrath, that king, in fact, murder took care of those who spitefully entreated his, his servants. And then he said, you go out and compel others to come the highways and byways. They did so, and a great multitude was gathered to enjoy the marriage feast. But then when the king entered, there was one not wearing his wedding garment. The king asked him, Wherefore hast thou come with no garment? The text says the man was speechless. He didn't have any answer. He could offer no reason for why he came in not wearing and not appareled with a garment. The king, in his anger, responded to him and said, Cast him out. He's not worthy of this. A garment was provided and you didn't wear it. Might we now ask ourselves of the same matter? God through Christ has made available a garment. A garment not enclosed in sin because dead to sin is the presentation of, the, of this passage and the presentation of the New Testament. Dead to sin. And yet do you and I still live in it? Have we forgotten what Christ did at Golgotha? Have we forgotten the message? And thus are we living with hateful character, opposed to the message of Christ, as if we are unthankful for what He has done? If so, we may well arrive at that day of judgment just like the man with no wedding garment. You see in Revelation 19, verses 9 and 10, we read about that great marriage feast. And on that occasion, the joy that will surround that event is for those who have been clothed in righteousness. Not those who are dead in sin, but those who have made themselves ready. Are you and I now making ourselves ready? We notice Jesus bore our sins. We notice we can now live dead to sin. There's only one concluding saga to this, and Peter stated it as well. Because if one doesn't live dead to sin, that which is left, alive unto righteousness. It is that that we will use to conclude our lesson tonight by asking this question. If it's true those wedding garments have been made ready for those that can live alive unto righteousness, that leads us to appreciate this. Association to God all through the Holy Scriptures is an association that involves and that brings life. Even Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. And He used that to teach the powerful reality that there's life after death. It's not over at the grave. And isn't it true in life, at the time we're baptized, it's true that there's death involved. That old man of sin's buried, but up from that watery grave comes a person alive unto God. That newness of life is represented in these terms and tones before us, alive unto righteousness. 
Are you and I alive unto God? Do we just go through the motions of our religion? It is as if we put on this old moth-eaten garment that really doesn't seem to challenge us and be what we're all about. It's a side light at best of our life. Peter wrote, we should be alive unto righteousness. When others appreciate your life and mine, we should evince and we should evidence in our life that livelihood that God has given us. Let's look at that from this angle, from this perspective. To say that we're made alive is to use the very language of Ephesians chapter 2. You, Paul wrote, were dead in trespasses and sins. When you and I were thus living in sin, the opposite of the second point we just learned, dead in sin, when we were living dead in sin, we thus were living a kind of life in which we were separate and apart from all that was lively, all that provided life. Now, no wonder four verses later in Ephesians 2.5, Paul said, But there was a great difference. You who once were dead in sins have now been quickened by the mercy and love of God. That word quickened means to be made alive. It is interesting then to think, though once dead, now we're made alive. Alive unto what? Alive unto righteousness. We are alive unto all that's right, all that's holy, all that's justifiable, and all that is honest in the sight of God. We are alive to all those things. Not alive unto sin, of course. It is in language like that. Paul wrote in Colossians, 1, Colossians 2 verse 13, We've been translated from the darkness of the world into the glorious light of the kingdom of God's dear Son. That is one of the largest distinctions one can encounter in the New Testament text, isn't it? From that degree of darkness to the overwhelming reality of God's light. We sing many songs in our book about the light of God. Walking in the light of the Lamb. Appreciative of the light of God's revelation. Here we notice that we are demanded of God and encouraged by Peter to live alive under righteousness. I would ask you to give thought to just a few of the ways that Paul and others have stated this. In Galatians 2.20, I, Paul wrote, am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. But he wasn't dead, for he wrote, Christ is alive in me. And I live unto that degree of righteousness. In Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul reiterated this. He said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. The one thing for which Paul sought, the one degree that characterized his life, alive unto righteousness. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. As he pressed toward that, he could do so because he was dead to sin. He was alive unto righteousness. That pursuit can also describe you and me. In 2 Corinthians 4.11, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal 
life. Paul thus wrote that Christ can be seen by others because of His appearance in your life and mine. We are always delivered unto death. In the same way that Christ died to the world, so too you and I must die to the world. Not pursuing its materialistic riches, not pursuing as at the final course that which the world has before us, but to ever understand that our motivation is to be alive unto righteousness. One chapter later in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14, Paul to that same group of Christians wrote, In this kind of language, he said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live unto themselves, or they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You and I thus have died, but we're now alive unto righteousness. And it's all because of the crucifixion. It's all because Christ made it possible for us to be dead to sin. I would invite you as you come near the close to that slide to ask the personal question, what do others see in you? What do they see in me? Do they see one who is dead to sin? One who is alive unto righteousness? Or do they see one who's alive unto sin and who's dead to righteousness? For it's the latter, my friend. We are in a very, very urgent and desperate situation. We're in a circumstance that not only is displeasing to God, but in fact will incur His wrath at the day of judgment. Because may we ask it this way, if Jesus, through His crucifixion, and all that we witnessed this morning in the excruciating pain and agony, if in that... God has made it possible for us to be dead to sin because He bore our sins and for us to be alive unto righteousness. What possible excuse will we have at judgment for which God will not pour His wrath upon us? If heaven has paid the price it did, what will I be able to say at judgment for not being obedient? I'm afraid I'll be speechless just like that man in Matthew 22. I'll have nothing to say. There should be no reason I can offer, no reason I can give that would justify my disobedience to His will. And you will not be, be able to say anything either. It's no wonder in Revelation 6, 17, it's noted there that the rocks, it'll be a cry that the rocks may fall upon us. Because as that chapter closes, in the great day of His wrath, who shall be able to stand? The only ones able to stand will be those alive unto righteousness. That's the only ones. All of those whose lives give the evidence of sin, who've never been cleansed by the blood of Christ, they are the ones that will in fact be forever separated from Him. Never another opportunity to be drawn near to Him. If your station in life tonight is a station in which you are dead unto righteousness and alive unto sin, Please think seriously and urgently about the lesson this morning, what God has allowed to be done for you, and think about what Peter says should be the character of your life and mine tonight. You and I are such that Jesus bore our sins. Now may we pause at this point to say, to say that He bore our sins does not mean that He bore your sins if you don't want Him to. If you never obey the gospel, despite the fact that He paid the price for them, you will still live in them. 
the guilt of them will never be cleansed, for you have to agree by obedient faith that you want them cleansed and you want them forgiven. If you don't obey the gospel, that great offer that God made, you will be rejecting. You'll be turning your back upon the Savior. You'll be, in fact, thumbing your nose at what He did at Golgotha. I can scarcely imagine what it would be like on the day of judgment to stand there and see Him, to be full-faced with what He did for you and to, in essence, say, I really couldn't care less. I don't care that you paid the price for my sins. I suspect there will be few that day in that kind of situation because hell will be before them, and they will know it. They will wish for another opportunity if only I could be baptized. The sad reality is it will be too late then. There will not be an opportunity at the time of judgment for all the deeds of the body have been done. At that point, the body will be no more. Our bodies will be spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. If tonight you need to respond to the call of invitation, don't let Satan encourage you to wait. Don't let him convince you that Wednesday will be better or that next Sunday will be preferable or that next month will be even better than that. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. And there may not be any other day than this one. If you need to respond tonight, realize the Lord demands this of you. And on these terms, He will forgive those sins. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Romans 10, verse 14. You need to repent of the sins in your life under the banner of the commandment of Acts 2.38. You need to confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God, the one who did this. As you make that confession, others will hear and hopefully be impressed by the sincerity of your life, but they at least will realize you've made that confession. That confession is commanded in passages such as Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. And then you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could help you do that tonight, and again, it's commanded, 1 Peter 3, 21, we would be honored to assist you. But may we say, if you have become a member of that body of Christ at some former day, but you have not been faithful to that calling, you in fact no longer live dead unto sin. Your life is more an example of what sin is than what sin should not be. If those sins are known publicly, let others pray for you and with you. Let them be aware of your determined, dedicated change. They'll pray for you. They will there be, be there with an encouraging word for you. And we'd be honored to pray to God that He would forgive you. If tonight we could be of assistance in either of those ways, or if we can pray for your strength, why not let that be known as you strive to live dead unto sin and alive unto righteousness. If those needs are characteristic of you, why not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.